Hi, this is Mike Balaban. Welcome to Bammer and Me. My guest today is Dastan Kazmamitov, a 30-year-old Kyrgyzstani native now residing in Berlin, Germany, who has an amazing story to tell. I, I can't wait to get this out to you here. Uh, Dastan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. We're going to do this in two parts because despite being only 30 years old, Dastan's life is been pretty filled uh, with amazing uh, accomplishments and challenges, and I'm looking forward to him sharing some of them with you here. Let's start at the beginning. Um, you're originally from Kyrgyzstan, though you've been living in Germany for six years. Um, yes, exactly. Most of our listeners probably have no idea where your country is is situated, much less what it was like growing up there. Would you explain that for them? Yes, in Kyrgyzstan. Growing up is probably quite different than growing up in uh, Western Europe or in the U.S., especially in the way that our how our society works. Yeah, it is very conservative and patriarchal society that ha- puts a lot of value into a family and family connections. I was brought up in a way to. Uh, like in those very rigid and uh, gender norms. So um, I was always taught to be a man or a boy in that case and to fight, for instance, or not to cry. I was not allowed to uh, play with the dolls and I didn't really understand back then why not because I really loved to play games where like, uh, I, I can, so to say, imitate a family. The, the thing is that in Kyrgyzstan, it's also very important what the extended family says and what other people say about you and your family. And that's a huge societal pressure onto you as a person. And of course, being gay is, is no goal for, for the family. And in general, I was brought up by like quite a normal family, I would say, in uh, Kyrgyzstan, a, a bit more educated rather than um, many others, because they, uh, both of my parents finished the higher education. That's why they were like, quite progressive, I would say, in comparison to many others in Kyrgyzstan. But still, when it came to homosexuality, they, um, they had problems with that. Would you also describe where it's located? Something about the surroundings? Sure. Uh, Kyrgyzstan is in uh, Central Asia. It was a part of the um, USSR. Until so the Soviet the, Union. The Soviet Union until 1991. Now it's independent, uh, but still very dependent of uh, Russia and neighboring China. Exactly whatever happens in Russia, by the way, influences onto us. So when they introduced this um, propaganda law in Russia against, uh, basically against any information about LGBT, the so-called anti-gay propaganda laws. Exactly, so-called anti-propaganda law. They wanted to introduce uh, that laws in um, Kyrgyzstan. And also the, the news, for instance, from Russia are influencing uh, what's happening in, in Kyrgyzstan a lot. So, um, so being a satellite state nearby and under the shadow of such a large neighbor is extremely influential in terms of what goes on and and the life among daily Kyrgyzstanis. Definitely, yeah, and th- that's why I believe 
whenever the situation in Russia going to change, um, it will also bring a lot of change in uh, the whole region of Central Asia. And there are something like six or seven Stans, you know, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Kazakhstan, right? And they all pretty much follow that same orbit? Yes, exactly. They are all more or less under influence of Russia in, in different degrees, of course. But I have to say that all of those countries are quite different from each other. So Turkmenistan is actually like North Korea. Right. It's very, uh, there is a dictatorship over there. Yeah. And Kyrgyzstan is probably on the other side of the spectrum. We are the only country in Central Asia that is more or less uh, democratic, that has more more or less free elections. Of course, we have lots of problems with human rights, uh, with LGBT rights, definitely. And the other common factor, I believe, is that all of them are Muslim in, 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 in essence, yes? Yeah, that, uh, that is true. Islam plays a huge role in terms of uh, the, the, the societal norms, yeah. How the, the gender norms, uh, homophobia that exists also influenced by, by Islam. Um, and um, Islam plays a huge role for many people in Kyrgyzstan. My family mm, was not that religious, yeah. So they um, they're Muslims as well, but they uh, followed only the Islamic rites when someone died or on some very important event. So they they've never been actually to mosque wow. before my coming out. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that that raises other questions. But so let's talk about coming out, or, or rather, how old were you when you first began to realize that you were attracted to other guys? And then when did you actually acknowledge to yourself that you were gay? Uh, after talking to you, Mike, uh, last time, yeah, I realized that actually there were moments in my childhood and in my teenage ages when I definitely had interest into other men without realizing it. And uh, one of those moments, for instance, um, was the... Uh, uh, my attraction to, to the uh, to the boots of men in the, in the movies, I I couldn't explain it back then why, but I felt it like it was something really cool, very attractive. I was not aroused back then, <laughs> yeah, sexually, but something was happening definitely, yeah, and I was imagining also. Uh, People around me, men around me, wearing also boots, and somehow I, I don't know. I felt like it's something cool, and something was happening within me. No, what uh, what uh, Aslan is alluding to is when I first asked him this question, he started answering about when he first developed attractions to specific boys and uh, and men, and and knew that there was a sexual component to it. And I had to explain to him that. Before we even develop the hormones that come along with adolescence, before we start to become sexual beings, we are still often drawn, as he's now volunteering, to other boys or men for reasons we don't understand that I would describe more as affectional preference rather than sexual preference. You are attracted to them by something about their personality, 
you want to be close to them, you want to become them, and you don't know why. So that's, I think your foundation was grounded in Boots, which is kind of an early form of Tom of Finland, if you are familiar with that, that, that little subculture. And then when did you acknowledge to yourself that you were probably gay? Uh, that happened when I was around uh, 15 or 16, after I started to dream about other men. Um, yeah, or, or, or like when I started watching uh, porn and working rather to, to the male bodies, uh, to, to the men rather than to women. Yeah, when I started also to have night dreams about, about guys. Yeah, uh, wet, wet dreams or just dreams? Uh, at first, they were just dreams, and they were even not uh, sexual. I would say, yeah. Sure, when sure. I was, yeah, um, kind of like, for instance, I clearly remember that um, a cool friend of mine was kissing another school girl friend of mine, yeah. And I believe, yeah, the dream kind of like I don't know. I felt like. It was like a bit of introduction to the whole homosexual dreams because in a way it was like sort of heterosexual, nothing like was happening. They were sort of kissing, but I remember that in that dream, my attention was on the guy. Yeah. And later I started to have different kind of dreams about guys. And at on some point I started um, later to look for gay porn or pictures of naked men back then i i believe it was hard to get porn movies because of very bad internet in the beginning i was looking for um pictures of naked men uh, on internet because the porn videos uh, yeah needed much stronger internet connection and i also remember that my mom somehow got that uh those um research results from google not results but like when you type in google like, search, search history search history exactly yeah she, so she, she saw what you'd been looking at yeah she saw that i was looking for what i wrote i think i wrote something like the pictures of men in um uh, underwear yeah that was definitely underwear well that's better than pictures of naked men (laughs) (laughs) you know you you bring back a memory of my own which is similar when i was five at kindergarten and we played doctor with a guy and a girl behind the behind the kindergarten tree in the backyard i only wanted to look at him not her I, i didn't know what that meant but we have early indications of our inclinations before we're aware of their significance well, I mean, like, you have a very good memory, uh, but I don't believe that, like, in my childhood, I had similar things. It's, you know, it, it comes at different points in, in everybody's life. So would you explain how you came out to your parents? And, and, and obviously, you alluded earlier to the importance of extended family in, in uh, Kyrgyzstan, but how that played into your family when you came out. The decision? To come out came after I came back from my studies in the U.S. Which was at, at what age? I was 18. Okay. I, I was 18 back then. And uh, I remember that during that time, I had changed a lot. I um, 
before the U.S., I was saying to myself that I'm bisexual. Yeah, be- because by telling that, I was like <laughs> sort of yeah giving myself probably hope that um, I'm gonna turn straight, or I don't know that I'm gonna yeah have in the end like a heterosexual um, family and kids and stuff like that. But in the U.S., uh, I realized, no, I'm actually gay. Where did you study in the U.S.? I studied at Pierce College, uh, University of Washington, oh, sorry, in Washington, state of Washington. You said Pierce, Pierce College? Pierce College, uh, it's in Tacoma. Yeah. Uh, for one year? Uh, yeah, yeah, around one year. I remember also there, there was, uh, in Tacoma, there was a youth center for uh, LGBT. And I was standing outside for, I think, an hour because I was really afraid to go in. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the points in my life that changed me a lot. Yeah, because and, and did you enter? I did in the end, yeah. I forced you, myself. You did? And, and yeah, what, did, I was, what did you I, discover? I was afraid that someone going to see me entering first. And I was also afraid of whom I going to meet there. And how are they going to react? Yeah, but they were so friendly and they were so accepting and welcoming. They told me that there is another center where I can go to where only young people meet. And it's hidden and no one knows about the place. And yeah, and visiting, I, I think every week I went there for um, like informal meetings. There were also different events going on. I went even to one activist workshop like a proper camp. I remember also I was even uh, rock climbing there. Yeah, so that time in the US helped me a lot to accept myself. Oh, and another really interesting story. Uh, once I, my host family told me, okay, let's go clubbing to me and to other international students. And I was like, ah, I'm, I'm like underage. I'm not allowed to go to any nightclub. And they Man, there is a club called Neighbors in Seattle that is uh, like open for everyone um, after 2 a.m. because they don't serve alcohol. We, we, we drove there and I remember how I was standing in the line and I saw a trans diva or um, cross-dresser uh, in the line and I was like, huh, this is interesting. And it turned out to be a gay club. <laughs> It was my first nightclub in the U.S. And, and, also, and, your, and your host family introduced you to it. Yes, yes. And later, I told them, like, three or four years later, I came out to my host family. And they're like, oh, we knew that. That's why we brought <laughs> you to a gay club. <laughs> I was like, how did you know? Even, like, I was not sure that I'm gay. So this was, like, a, uh, an interesting Art, I would say, of my life. Uh, I still don't know how they they got to know that I'm gay. Maybe they saw your search results too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell us about when you decided to come out to your parents and how that went. I thought that story was particularly interesting. This happened when I was uh, 20 years old, 19, 20. And um, it was very important for me to tell that because. I was constantly lying to them when I was meeting someone. Um, 
for a date or stuff like that. And my parents were like the closest people to me. And I saw how proud they were of me and what I, what I do in my life. And uh, I just felt I have to say that, that I am gay. Yeah, and, and, and it was not easy. So we were dining that evening and I told them basically, hey, mom and dad, I'm, I have to tell something to you and probably you will not like it at all. Um, you will be shocked. And then I could not say those words. I am gay. So they got just like worried. Uh, asking questions like, did someone get pregnant? Uh, I said, no. Uh, do you take drugs? No. Do, do you have HIV? I replied again, no. And my mom even asked, did you kill anyone? And I said again, no. <laughs> um, and then finally they asked me whether I'm gay. And I could not reply to that question, but it was already clear that I'm gay. And um, that there was a long period of silence. At least I felt like it was quite a long um, yeah, period of shock. Because at that moment, I probably yeah, destroyed all the dreams that they had about me that or um, about like, future family and children that they're going to have or things like that. And it was completely something new to them. And when my mom asked, do you want to heal yourself, to treat yourself from homosexuality? At that moment, I said yes. And because I felt like if I would say no, um, I would even destroy their expectations in like, even more so I didn't want to confront them at that point uh, during that evening um, so I just said no well, as you and, explained it to me you felt like there was a lot for them to react to and adjust to and doing it all at once was too much so you wanted to give them a little hope and then over time yeah, exactly yeah because as 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 I explained already, that I I needed myself a lot of time to accept myself as a gay person, right? And definitely, my parents need the same time to understand that it's okay, it's normal. You want to explain the shame that will permeate a family, the extended family, if that news gets out in, in Kyrgyzstan. Yeah, so uh, I believe my parents were really afraid of what others gonna say about me, especially the extended family, because being gay is definitely in our society and many other societies is is a complete yeah yeah is is a is a dishonor to the family name yeah um, to my uh, last name, Kosmomitov, yeah, so when someone is gay in the family, it means the whole family blood is kind of, I don't know, uh, yeah, like... Um, tainted? Yeah, tainted, yeah, and yeah, so that that was a big issue for me and for my parents, yeah. 
to be, um, we were afraid that we will be left out of family gatherings, for instance, or we were not be invited to, yeah, to the weddings. Or, uh, so did, as a result of you sharing it with them, did they keep it a secret and not tell anybody else in the family initially? Initially, yes. Yeah. yeah. So we, we kept the, it as a secret, of course, yeah. Your family has learned that you're gay. They've reacted as well as you might have hoped in the country and the setting in which you lived. They're not happy. They think you're open to treatment. Um, what happened next? So um, first, they wanted to do it uh, a proper way. That we went to the Republican Center of the Psychiatric Health, where my mom was told. Uh, I was also there. I heard it um, that the homosexuality is not a disease, and they can't really help uh, in any way. Um, and, but they gave a number to my mom. And they so let me, let me just inter interrupt to make sure the readers understood. You were sent essentially to a mental health clinic, to a psychiatric association, and that she hoped would be able to help cure you. And they said, "Sorry, there's no disease." This is normal, and they gave you another number, and that number was exactly. They gave it number, and it was. A, they said it in a very weird intonation. So my mom told me, "Okay, I'm gonna go there myself." She went there and uh, told me later that it was a weird place, like very dark street, no uh, ring bell, and she had to knock the door. The door opens. There's a huge rainbow flag hanging <laughs> on the wall, and uh, trans women, I think, um, opens the door, and she's like, "Okay, they couldn't, they will not help me here." But they asked her, what, "What what does she want?" And my mom told that she is a lesbian and she wants to cure herself. And they were like, oh, it's not. <laughs> they tried to explain it's, it's not a disease, things like that. Yeah. But what I did, I took that number. So did your mother give it to you anyway? Uh, no, I did it. Uh, yeah. I just made a picture of that number previously. So, so and then later I uh, visited uh, uh, that uh, LGBT center. It's called Dabres. Uh, in Kyrgyzstan, uh, they had the community place. Yeah, and uh, that's how I started to be involved in activism. And um, but at the same time, they um, my 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 mom was mostly uh, trying to cure myself, um, and she went then to different uh, fortune tellers to the religious. Leaders, so she actually became, uh, yeah, she was ready to believe any religion, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism doesn't matter. If that religion gonna like cure me, uh, she's gonna believe in that. Told me, <laughs> and she was going to the church uh, every morning. I think at five, six a.m. to bring three liters of holy water, so I could drink it. The whole day, wash myself, things like that. So basically, uh, she was desperate enough for a cure that she would have done anything to help change you. Exactly, yeah. I also remember that I was finding like different weird things in my room. 
like a knife under my pillow or some kind of substances. And once I uh, was forced uh, to get a calendar of one of fortune towers with his face, and he was like really like um, not the I would say not the uh, cutest and handsome man in this world. <laughs> So uh, every time my uh, my friends were coming over, I was taking down that calendar. Um, I had to learn to pray uh, in Arabic, for instance. Yeah. How how long did this go on for? For several years until they noticed that I started to have um, depression, apathy, and problems at school. And then my mom realized, okay, this is. This, this is not going in a good direction, and she stopped. So in the meantime, you got involved with the center, right? Right. And, and gradually, you were so active in it that I believe you went on its board of directors. Yes, that happened much later. But uh, during uh, my involvement, um, uh, while I was in Kyrgyzstan, I uh, was... Uh, actually, almost work, yeah, working basically. I I, got, I had even my salary at some point. Before that, I was volunteering a lot, of course, and doing uh, mostly advocacy work. Advocacy, because, yeah. advocacy. Sorry, yeah. because many people uh, from activist background they don't really have uh, much knowledge and skills uh, to do advocacy. And advocacy also implied a lot of work with media, with governmental institutions. And, and they, couldn't afford, they couldn't afford to be out in, in their situations, presumably. First, to be out, of course. And uh, secondly, um, for instance, if you needed to work with international organizations, you needed English for yeah. that. Uh, or writing skills or things like that. And yeah, and unfortunately, not many people had those skills. And, uh, did, did you but, learn your English all during that year in Washington, or had you been studying all along in in uh, Kyrgyzstan? I was lucky that I uh, went to a school in Kyrgyzstan that had a focus focus on uh, English language. So uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, during my activism, I actually saw a lot of cases. Um, I was in the um, a special um, group where we had to go to the, for instance, to the police and uh, be with the victims of violence and um, help them. And sometimes I had to go at night even. And I saw so many things and so much injustice. Um, and also, I, me myself experienced a lot of problems with the police. Did they harass you when you went to report these problems or to try to uh, intervene? The police, did they harass you? They, um, like me personally, I got into um, a few, uh, into several cases, yeah. Like one was when they tried to intimidate us, me and my uh, uh, previous partner from Kyrgyzstan. We were walking in the in one of the parks, and we kissed, and someone noticed it, um, and the police came, and they started to intimidate me personally, like threatening, 
and threatening my partner. He was not out back then, and he had to pay money. They, they blackmailed uh, him. A bribe, yeah. Yeah, and uh, then once um, I had also a weird uh, situation when uh, an activist friend of mine gave me a card, very erotic, where two gay men were uh, doing rimming, and I had uh, it in my backpack. Did you say rimming? Yeah, they were one the guy was rimming another. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yeah, and the police stopped me and my and a partner back then in a, another park and they searched us and they saw that card. Uh yeah, and again it was not very nice, pleasant situation, of course. Um, uh, but uh this time uh, yeah, it went more or less okay. How, how did you yeah. escape those situations? You have to pay money, or mostly had to pay money, or um, I I didn't pay money because I was outed, and right. I talked to my family and I said, okay, tell tell my my parents, yeah, uh, yeah, I they know about it. So, but the problem was mostly for my partners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they were not out. So, um, what what happened next is going to be pretty fascinating. Uh, for our audience here. You found yourself through a combination of circumstances becoming the poster boy for gay rights, LGBTQ rights in your country. Would you tell us how that happened? Um, exactly. So Human Rights Watch, the international organization, was doing a research in Kyrgyzstan about uh, police violence against uh, gay and bisexual men. Um, and they also interviewed me, but many other uh, gay and bisexual men in Kyrgyzstan. And uh, later they were looking for pe for people who would uh, uh, participate in the press conference uh, when they, that report uh, was published. It was hard. I mean, there was no one uh, who was ethnically Kyrgyz would say, okay, yes, I would, I'm ready for that. And, but I decided that I, I, I want to do that. And I need, I need to do that as an activist. Uh, I talked to my parents. Uh, they didn't like it, of course, at first, but they said, okay, do whatever you want. But they actually did not really support that my decision, the decision. Well, clearly they realized what the implications mm -hmm. and repercussions were going to be for your family, right? And for all of the people. I mean, it would suddenly place them in, in the spotlight. Yeah. I think back then I was not really realizing what, are, what the implications, implications could be. So, and that was probably looking back Right now, I would say I would do the same, but um, but back then, after coming out and experiencing many things, after the uh, coming out, public coming out, back then I was telling myself, why did I do that? Yeah. Um, and uh, but anyways, the, the press conference went well. And I was all over the media, like on TV channels, 
uh, in newspapers, magazines, and so on. And then the next day, what happened is that the semi-governmental religious authority, Muftiyat, issued um, a fatwa, which is like kind of religious law, saying that all gay men should be stoned to death. Uh, because Muhammad said so. And after that fatwa, um, there, there were many attacks against LGBT organizations and activists, including me. Uh, I personally experienced uh, a physical attack in the city of Osh when, um, yeah, I... I was hit and into um, uh, into my head, uh, and and, uh, and uh, um, so it was the first time when it came to blood, literally. And another uh, time, I was, um, uh, I yeah, the 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 car um, um, was sort of like. Hit hit me from behind, and I I don't really remember anything. I, I woke up in a hospital, but uh, the people who saw it, they uh, told later to my dad and uh, to the uh, uh, to the people who came to the ambulance and so on that um, it's yeah. It, it was a bit crazy because the, the driver seemed to be uh, either crazy or he did it on purpose. Eh? So he just accelerated with his car and yeah, hit me. And uh, I yeah, I, I don't remember. How, how many incidents of violence did you experience? And were you hospitalized more than that once? Um. I experienced those were two major cases. There were also, of course, the um, other cases when I was threatened a lot. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, online or on media. That uh, I can't even count those cases. But the, in real life, I was like, for instance, uh, uh, recognized in one of the gyms in Bishkek, uh, where the owner of the gym uh, called me out and said, hey, listen, um, guys are um, gathering in the gym and they want to beat you up. So if you want to leave alive, you should go now. And uh, I left immediately. And this is crazy because like now, like in Berlin, where we the gyms are the gayest place ever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, and again, there were many other um, examples like that where I was recognized in the streets uh, or threatened uh, or my... Uh, in the comments below the videos that were posted with my coming out, uh, some posted also personal information about me, my sister, uh, things like that. So um, I felt really, really threatened. My family felt really threatened. 
it just goes to show that while it may have decriminalized homosexuality, making it technically legal in order to access those AIDS funds, clearly the underlying culture and the conservative Islamic religion didn't change this, this conditions at all. Uh, the homophobia and, and the uh, violence against gays uh, was as strong as it probably was in those other stands in the neighboring countries. Um, how long did you contend with these conditions? And why did you stick around given, I mean, I realized leaving your home country is not easy. Why did you stay as long as you did, given the threats to your health and maybe even life? Because I believe that it's uh, an important time to make change. Uh, after my coming out, by the way, the parliament started to introduce the war bill. They had a war bill on uh, like uh, propaganda as well. Just, just like in Russia. Exactly, just like in anti, Russia. Anti-gay, yeah. But it would be worse because they wanted to criminalize, basically. Uh, and I would say there would be recriminalization of homosexuality because you could not talk about LGBT. Right. Tall, and he would go into prison for that, or to show any like symbols or whatever, or support, uh, or or even support. Yeah. So and, what happened? Uh, what happened to that effort? Uh, we fought back, and uh, we drew attention of the international community to that. Of course, we um, uh, tried to build a network of allies and empowerment. Um, um, we tried to do a lot of work behind us, the curtains, the scenes in the parliament. And so, uh, and there was a lot of pressure onto the deputies who started, who initiated that law bill. So in the end, it was forgotten, but it came to the second reading. And after that, it was in a way forgotten. Yeah. And I believe at that time, like, there were also many other political changes happening in Kyrgyzstan um, in a good way, you know, freer elections, more freedom of media. And I felt like this is a crucial time for LGBT activism as well. Um, yeah, but again, um, unfortunately, uh, I experienced all those uh, cases of violence and threats and not only me, but also my parents, and they forced me uh, yeah, to apply to for different scholarships in, in Europe. Um, well, they, they, they convinced you, right? Yeah, yeah, of course they convinced me, <laughs> but, but it, it was like my mom was telling me that every day, every single day, you should leave the country, you should apply somewhere, you should go. It's not safe for you. And so on. So it's, yeah. How much of that, and this is not an easy question, maybe not, maybe not fair. How much of that was motivated, do you think, by their love and concern for your health? And how much of it was selfish concern about their own reputations in the country and in the family? I think with the reputation, um, they, they lost it anyways uh, before that. So it was not an easy time for uh, for them as well. Uh, I think it's um, mostly, yeah, it was definitely concerns about my health and life. 
and they just yeah they they love me even if we had issues we uh, we struggled with um all those um all the treatment and yeah things like that all the my activism uh, being exposed as a gay family basically to all my relatives and yeah yeah but they 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 love me and they wanted the better life for me and that's why they were forcing me as well so how did you select germany and um let's explain to the audience why you chose to apply under a student visa designation rather than under a refugee uh, visa designation exactly i was thinking of also actually uh, applying for um asylum status somewhere but after researching i realized it is first not easy yeah i would all probably get an asylum in the end most probably but it's also really hard to be an asylum seeker in europe the conditions that you're living in uh the homophobia that you face yeah because you uh stay mostly in the dorms uh where people from different societies some very conservative and patriarchal societies also um and people are being threatened and sometimes also uh yeah physically uh uh attacked uh and um going through the whole bureaucracy and then later in life because you have that stamp of a refugee um will not probably i thought back then will not make my life easier and i had this other opportunity to come to europe as a student and yeah i grabbed that opportunity and but we should realize that like not um many people have that um possibility uh, to study because why, have, why was it available to you uh because i could speak languages foreign languages because i fulfilled the requirements in order to enter universities and uh in europe and yeah i uh had the skills and background and experience to apply for different scholarships right. yeah so you applied and are studying IT information technology correct yes yeah, so uh, first i actually did my masters in norway and then um um i also studied here in germany after that i moved to germany because uh i developed uh, a relationship with one guy and he could not move to norway so i had to move to germany Yeah, but we broke up in the end <laughs> and but in in the end yeah i decided to stay uh in german because i found a job as well here yeah doing yeah, what but, but, I, but i'm a, a programmer okay I, i'm a software engineer right and as my understanding is that for various reasons when you complete your studies you will be able to transition into residency permanent residency status is that correct Exactly yeah. yeah. So I I can stay here legally forever yeah. And the advantage of that is that 
you have remained on the board of the LGBT Center in Bishkek. Is that the name of the capital? Yes, uh, I re remained as a board member there. And um, during my um, absence in Kyrgyzstan, I was thinking, okay, what can I do? Uh, because here in Europe, I felt a bit depressed that I'm no longer involved in LGBT activism as I could. I'm not there uh, in Kyrgyzstan. And yeah, and I came up with different ideas how I can still be involved and, and bring something uh, to LGBT movement in Kyrgyzstan, to contribute to the LGBT movement in Kyrgyzstan while being here in Europe. Yeah. So, if, so if I understand, uh, some of that involves writing articles that get published in Kyrgyzstan that, around issues that move that activism forward. Some of it involves helping plan events, and the advantage of having the resident of the student visa, unlike the uh, asylum or refugee visa, is you're able to freely come and go back to Kyrgyzstan, which the refugee visa would not allow you to return home without threatening the loss of that status. Um, so you go back and forth, you attend events, you write articles, and we'll be speaking in our next segment, a separate interview with you, about how mountain climbing, mountaineering has become a, a platform for you to be an advocate as well. Is that a correct summary of what you're doing from Berlin? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So uh, my parents always tell me uh, that I come to Kyrgyzstan, do some things, turn the things up, and then <laughs> go back. <laughs> and they have to deal all with, uh, with those, my media interviews and things like that. It's uh, called, it's called an agent provocateur in French. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, um, do you feel threatened when you go back? Is there a risk of violence each time you return? Uh, Yes, and for some reason, um, I became much more concerned now uh, when I go back to Kyrgyzstan uh, because more and more people recognize me. There are more uh, 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 media writing about me, for instance, and uh, yeah, um, it's not easy uh, to come back, but I'm... I feel, I, I'm always excited about it. And of course, to see my family, first of all, and friends and co-activists. But uh, We didn't yeah. discuss it. You have a sister. Do you have other siblings? No, I have a sister, yeah. yeah. Is, uh, and we also didn't discuss your personal life either in my prior conversations with you or today, except you mentioned yeah. you had a partner in Kyrgyzstan and one in uh, Germany from Norway. Uh, have there been long-term relationships in your life? Uh, my longest relationship was uh, two years, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> uh, because of probably because of my uh, uh, very crazy life, I would say, and uh, and be because of yeah my movements yeah from one country to another. Well, clearly, being in in uh, Kyrgyzstan and dating someone most likely who is not out. Uh, provides a lot of risk for them. So as much as you may feel for each other, it's it's a barrier, an obstacle that's really hard to overcome. But I, hopefully that issue 
living in a place where you can be open will be less uh, insurmountable. Yes, and uh, here I feel myself safe. First of all, yeah, I, I in Berlin I can, if something happens, I can go to the police, and people like sometimes like gay fans of mine here sometimes do not appreciate those little things that are seem to be normal to them, but absolutely not normal to me. I mean, like I, it's such a big deal, yeah, to. To be able to go to the gym, which is, in fact, even gay-friendly and that will not pick you out because you're gay, to, um, um, to have yes. an ac- access to justice, to have the, those freedoms that, unfortunately, I didn't have in Kyrgyzstan. It's kind of amusing. Uh, in that sense, you and I share similarities because, you know, I'm 69 and I came out in the 70s, 1976 at 23, 24 when you could be kicked out of your family or church or fired from your job, it was considered a mental illness. You could be put in an institution and given shock treatments. So I too, and people my age too, often look at the amazing freedoms that most young people have. It depends on where you live and your family, but around being open about who they are. And the complaints and the fact they take this for granted and don't have any sense of the progress and the the luxury of living such a life. But you know, that's to be to be understood. If you grow up to something being normal, you don't understand how valuable it is. Exactly. But there is still a lot of work to be done uh, here as well. Uh, I um, had also several cases of being verbally attacked in Berlin, and even during the gay pride in Amsterdam, which is crazy, yeah? uh, for, yeah, being apparently gay. And, yeah, so uh, th- those moments, I, uh, like, especially in Amsterdam, I was, like, a bit of mentally destroyed because I came to so to say, a safe haven to Europe. And here as well, even here, we face still some injustice and those such, uh, such, such kind of threat. And yeah. Well, the problem is in a world where people are most comfortable that others like themselves, any difference brings out fear and um, opposition. So homophobia, racism, sexism, you know, all of these... Uh, continue to exist even in a world that's largely improving. Now, has it gotten any better, do you think, in Kyrgyzstan in the decade that you've been an activist, or is it pretty much exactly the same as it was in 2011? No, it got definitely better in the way that we are now more visible. Yeah. Yeah. So after me, there were some other people who came out publicly, including transgender people, including lesbians. Um, and this is great. This is like awesome. I'm like, uh, and uh, the um, media post something about me. There was an article, for instance, um, uh, uh, about our, uh, the campaign that I do. And they, uh, there were lots of comments, like thousands of comments. 
many of them were like positive, supportive. And this didn't happen back then when I first came out. Yeah, so also the allies have now power to openly support LGBT communities, and this is great. I think through allyship, um, yeah, a lot of things, good things are happening now. Yeah, we we rely upon allies to move the needle for us and to push our rights forward because they have access to power in a way that those of us in the community don't often have, certainly at the beginning. One other thing you shared with me, uh, and we'll discuss exactly the context in our second interview in a little more detail as to why, but your visibility has elicited comments and contact and input from Kyrgyz in small towns, uh, in other countries, telling you way to go. Is that correct? Yes, and this is this was personally very important to me because after my um, come out, uh, public come out, uh, coming out story, I got a lot of messages also from LGBT communities saying, blaming me for LGBT, uh, anti-LGBT lobby in the parliament uh, against this fatwa that came out. Uh, so basically uh, telling you because you chose to challenge the establishment, they were claiming that you were making life worse for them. Exactly. And of course I was like, uh, wait a sec. I mean, like, I'm putting my life at risk. And now you're blaming me for doing wrong things. And uh, yeah, that I was really upset about those messages. But later, um, after a year, I started to receive a lot of messages from far away in the mountains in a small village somewhere in Kyrgyzstan. A guy, young guy wrote to me that he had no idea that someone like, uh, him, like gay people, even exist in Kyrgyzstan. He didn't come even to uh, the idea to Google about it because he just didn't have that in his mind. Yeah. And, uh, or like the story of the uh, Kyrgyz guy living in China, uh, historically, because we're also Kyrgyz uh, in Xinjiang, region of China. He also sent me uh, voice messages on Instagram, thanking for yeah for my coming out story in Kyrgyz. He couldn't even write in Kyrgyz. He just sent me voice messages. Probably there at school. Of course, they don't. Learn. China is, is suppressing any individuality, and in, in particular when it comes to the Muslims in the far west of the country. They yes, won't, exactly. they won't let them use the language, for example, as you said. Yeah. yeah. Mm, and uh, he also shared a bit of his story. It's quite hard for him to be first, first uh, of all, like in the ethnic minority as a Muslim in China and being gay. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, it's a double pressure on both sides, so to say. I have a, an, a, a parallel. I, I have an Instagram page, uh, Bammer Forty Seven. And I put out a lot of our history through my eyes with my vintage photos over 45 years. And I received uh, comments 
I'm a 16-year-old in the deep south of the United States, very conservative area, basically thanking me, saying he looked forward to my posts more than anything that gave him hope about life that lay ahead for him. And I, I was touched to, to the point of, of choking up when I first got that. And the problem is, of course, because he's under 18, I, I'm really not able. He wanted to reach out to me privately, and I can't do that. It would be illegal. I had to basically give him advice through the comment section of my page until he turns 18 or send him to resource centers like LGTB, you know, mm -hmm. uh, centers where he might obtain that help. But I understand how it feels for you to finally be, for lack of a less loaded word, vindicated and validated for the risk you took to your own body and health on behalf of belief that something better was possible for all the LGBT community in your country. So I want to congratulate you and thank you on behalf of those who can't reach out to you for everything you've done in this last decade and for making yourself available today. And we'll continue with part two short. Do you have anything else you'd like to add before we end? Uh, no, I think I, I told a lot. Yeah, you're also a very good interviewer. So like you, um, yeah. Pull out uh, a lot of information. Uh, that's that's my role here. <laughs> well, thank you for being with us here today. The Stan will uh, will continue with part two shortly. And thanks to our listeners for checking in. Thank you a lot. The podcast you've been listening to is produced by Mike Balaban and Tom Walker recorded and researched by Mike Balaban, with editing and music from Henry Lay.